The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. When Jesus teaches, his teaching will always explain and apply what he has done. And what he does always illustrates what he has taught. And so as you read through the Gospels, you discover that God's very interested in you understanding not only what Christ has done, who he is, but also to understand the truth that he has communicated to us. And so what you heard this morning in uh, Luke chapter 7, the first 23 verses, is a section of Luke in which we see two great acts of Jesus, supernatural acts, supernatural things that he did. He healed a man, the, the servant of the centurion, and then he raised a man from the dead who was the only son of a widow. And we'll see how significant that was. So I want us to take a look at this, but understand that what, one of the things that the Bible does for us, it gives us what some have called, I, I read it, there's a guy that I met recently, Peter Briggs, he's a, he's a graduate of MIT, and so he's an engineer, and you know how engineers are, right, Tom? And how they think. And so he has written a bunch of curriculum for teaching overseas, and especially in the context of Africa, training pastors. And uh, I've been really fascinated by the way that he analyzes the, the scriptures and how he applies the fact that the Bible, for believers, for Christians, the Bible is a system that tells you what reality really is. It interprets the world for you so that you can understand what's really going on. For example, we walk by faith, not by sight. And faith isn't believing what isn't true. Faith is believing what God has said. That's what faith is. Faith is believing something because God says it. And what we have in the Bible is the word of God. Something that's very clear in Scripture is that Jesus Christ believed and taught and made clear that the Bible is the Word of God, and we can have absolute confidence in it. So what the, the way that the Bible interprets life is reality and truth. We can be convinced of the way things are by what the Bible actually says about how things are. And so what we have in this section is a help to understanding what life in the kingdom of God is like. Now, you may not be used to hearing that expression, the kingdom of God. If you read the Gospels, you find out when Jesus came on the scene and when John the Baptist came on the scene. By the way, John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist. Uh, there, there was no Baptist denomination that existed then. Uh, he was a baptizer, and that's what that expression means. He was the one who was called by God to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of Messiah. And so the act of baptizing them was an act of cleansing them and preparing their hearts for the coming of Messiah. And so when John the Baptist came on the scene, John the baptizer and Jesus came on the scene, they preached the gospel of the kingdom. Now the kingdom is not another word for the church. It's another way of looking at God's activity in the world. The kingdom of God has existed since God created all things. He's been the ruler over all things. This is the great offense of believing in the existence of God. If God is truly the creator, and if he is the king, and this is his kingdom, that is that everything he created he rules over, then you're not in control. God is God and you are not. And that's a hard thing to swallow for many of us. 
that I'm not in control, that God's in control. But what we have happening when Jesus came on the scene was the proclamation that the kingdom of God had arrived in an unusual way. It's actually called, this phase of the kingdom that we are in is called the kingdom of God's dear son. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says that, that we were transferred out of the kingdom of, or the, out of the authority of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And so we live in a kingdom in which Jesus rules. We submit to the rule of Jesus Christ. He is our king as well as our savior. The church is a word that pictures us as believers in Jesus Christ who have been assembled by God. We're not all in the same place. As you know, the, the church is scattered throughout the whole world. But we are an assembly because God has assembled us together as his people. And we all worship Jesus Christ. One of the things about traveling anywhere in the world is when you find Christians in every part of the world, you will find them gathering together and worshiping together. Their singing may be a little bit different. They may be a little more joyful than some of us are. And they may be speaking a different language, but you are a part of that same family. And they welcome you in that way. It's an amazing thing. No matter where you go, Christians will welcome Christians into their midst because we serve the same Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this section, what we have is two, these two great acts of Jesus and then a word of explanation. And what Jesus is doing for us in a very powerful way, he is illustrating two wonderful things about the kingdom of God. The first one, the healing of the centurion's son, is an illustration of how we are to live in the kingdom. We are to live by faith and not by sight. We have to, we, the only way it works within the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's dear son, is to live by faith rather than to live by physical sight. And the second great act of Jesus here, of raising the, the only son of a widow, is to illustrate for us how you get into the kingdom. It's through resurrection. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, all that means is we weren't physically dead, of course. We weren't zombies. It's just that we weren't alive to God. We were spiritually dead. We lived as though God didn't even exist. In fact, I'm sure you've had the experience of talking to somebody about the living God and then being offended by this, thinking you're a fool for believing such a thing. Well, we've discovered is that there is reality in having a relationship with the living God through Christ. And it changes everything. It changes all of life. It brings joy. It brings the fruit of the Spirit. It brings relationship with God who created us for himself. And so in this section, uh, what's, what's going on here is that Jesus is going to illustrate for us something really important, and that is uh, how to live in the kingdom. Now, what is life in the kingdom? How does the centurion's faith illustrate life in the kingdom? Well, the way it illustrates life in the kingdom is he believed. And remember, you can see this in the text that Jesus said he had never seen faith like this before, even among Israel. How was his faith manifested? Well, what happens is this servant of his that he highly regarded, and you have to remember, um, centurion means a Roman soldier, a Roman officer 
who had a hundred men under his leadership. A hundred men. It's pretty impressive. This guy was like the cutting edge of the Roman army. Now, typically, the Jews would have hated such a man because they were enslaved to Rome in a very real sense. They saw Rome as an invader of their land, controlling their land and their people. And yet this man, this centurion, who was a Roman soldier, Roman officer, loved the people of Israel. And in fact, if you remember what he says here, he says, when, they, when he asked some elders from the synagogue in Capernaum, and by the way, a synagogue was like a local church among the Jews. It wasn't a church of Jesus Christ, but it was a gathering of believers in the God of Israel. It came into existence during the Babylonian captivity when they were away from the temple. Because if you remember, Israel had a temple. That was where God dwelt in the temple. God doesn't, doesn't dwell. We're not going to see the Shekinah glory fall on that building down the road here when it's finished. But they saw that in the temple of Israel. When God manifested his presence there, the Shekinah glory was manifested. They could see that God was dwelling in his temple. But what happened was Israel was taken into captivity, and so they found a new way of worshiping God together as the people of God. They met in synagogues, and synagogues were like neighborhood churches, so to speak. They were neighborhood gatherings of these Jewish people who worship God, and they would get together and they would worship the living God. They would read the Torah, read the scriptures, and be taught, and they would even sing together. It was very much like the church. In fact, the church gatherings very early on were patterned after these synagogue meetings. And so what what happened was, was that this centurion who loved the Jewish people actually built their synagogue for them in Capernaum. Now we're still looking for a centurion to do that for us. I don't think it cost quite as much money back then, but he put up the money and built this synagogue. He loved these people. He was good to them. And so these elders from this synagogue want Jesus to go and visit him and heal his servant. Now, these aren't Pharisees. These are just leaders in this synagogue in Capernaum. And so evidently they actually believed that Jesus could heal. And of course they would because they saw him do that very thing. They saw him heal people. And in this case, we see him raising the dead. And so he sends these friends of his, these elders, to talk to Jesus and ask him if he would come and heal his servant who's about to die because he really cared for this guy. And so Jesus said, all right. And so he goes with them, and they're on the way to the centurion's house. But on the way, the centurion sends out some friends of his and tells him, you don't need to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to set foot into my house to come under my roof. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus said, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. This man had so much confidence in Christ. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah and he had the ability to heal. And so Jesus spoke the words. In fact, the centurion said, I'm a man of authority. I'm under authority above me, and I have men under me who are in authority, and when I, under my authority, when I say to them, go or come, that's what they do. My servants obey me, so you have authority over all things. You can simply speak the word, and my servant will be healed. That's faith. You see, he's believing the testimony 
of the scriptures in the Old Testament. This is what the scriptures said that Jesus would do. He would heal the sick, that, that the Messiah would do. He would heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, do miraculous things. And so he had confidence that Jesus could do this simply by speaking the word, even from a distance. He didn't have to even come into his house. And so he sends his friends out to tell him this. And Jesus spoke the word, and he was healed. And when they went back to the centurion's home, the servant had been made whole. He was healed. Now, this is what we are supposed to do in life in the kingdom. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. Walk there doesn't mean take a stroll down the road. It means live. It's talking about how you live your life every day. We live our lives every day as a people of Christ by faith. We believe what has been revealed to us in the word of God. So we believe that Jesus can do exactly what he said he could do. In fact, what ha- the, all of us have experienced faith. Faith means believing what God has revealed to us through his word. And so we believe his revelation. This is why reading the Bible is important for Christians. Because what happens is we begin to understand more and more about who God is and what he has done and what he has promised and what he has commanded. And so as we walk by faith, we, get become, we have an expanded understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. And so what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5 is this is how we live. We live by faith in the kingdom of God's dear son. One of the things that this kingdom, the present state of the kingdom, which we are in right now, is called by some Bible students is the already not yet kingdom. And the reason for that is we right now are experiencing a phase in the kingdom of God in which we cannot see the king seated on the throne. We take it by faith that he's seated on the throne because that's what the scriptures say. The scripture says when Jesus arrived back in the third heaven where the presence of God, where God is present, the father said to him, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, reigning over his people. You have a king who has all authority and power in this entire universe, and he is the one that you look to. He is the one that you listen to. He is the one that you have absolute faith in. There's a lot of people in the world today that want you to believe what they say about everything in life. Isn't there? I mean, just go on Google and uh, Google anything you want to, and you'll find out there are world experts on everything there is. But there's only one person in the universe that you can absolutely trust. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we walk by faith, not by sight. Because the things that we see, that is the things we go through in our lives, the trials that we face, sometimes are confusing to us. How does this make sense? Why is God allowing this? What we can find out from the Word of God is that God tells us why he allows trials in the lives of his children. He does it because of his love for them. And he wants to reveal to them his relationship with them. And it's it's in the midst of trials that we actually begin to experience and to know Christ in a way we haven't known him before. And so we walk by faith. That is believing who he said he is and what he said he's doing 
and what he says he's going to do. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so this man's faith, which Jesus said was beyond the pale, it was more than he had ever seen demonstrated by any of the the, uh, people of Israel, that is an illustration of how we are to live in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God's dear son, in the present form of the kingdom. We're to live by faith. Now, here's, here's the problem. The only way our faith is going to grow is for our understanding of what God has said grows. Because faith is a response to God's word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. What the Bible says about Christ. So the way that our faith grows is by understanding him. I wanted to show you this. This was put together by this engineer I was telling you about. <laughs> um, Peter Briggs, and what he's doing here on this chart is showing you when you look at the way Jesus lived, you can see his faith manifest. You say, wait a minute, why would Jesus have to exercise faith? Because he came into the world and became a man, and he lived under the authority of the Father. You remember when Jesus said, I don't know anything that I only do what I see the Father doing. I obey the Father's commands. And so he had faith, and this faith is really the faith that you received when you came to faith in Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not of works, as anyone should boast, because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Well, what happened was the Father gave you the faith of his Son. And this is how it's described on this chart. This is just a description, and you get this simply as looking at Scripture and see the way Jesus related to his Father as he lived on the earth as a man. Remember, he's the mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, a man, Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became a man. And this is the kind of faith that he manifested. First of all, he had perfect confidence in the unshakable love of the Father for him. Have you ever been tempted to believe that God must not love you? Don't answer that. But of course we have. We've had those moments when we wondered, wait a minute, maybe I was wrong. Maybe God doesn't even notice me. He had this, the unshakable love of the Father could never be removed from him, that he was loved by the Father. And you know what Jesus says in John 17 when he's praying for you? And he's really praying for you. You may think, well, wait a minute, how could he pray for me? That was many, many years ago. That was 2,000 years ago. Well, this is what he said when he prayed to the Father. He prayed for his disciples, the apostles, that God had given him. And then he says, and I pray for all those who will come to faith because of their testimony. That's what the New Testament is. It's the testimony of the apostles. So he's praying for you, believer. And he was saying this. He said, Father... Let them experience being loved by you the same way that I have been loved by you from all eternity. In other words, the implication is clear. That God loves you as a believer in the same way he has loved his son from all eternity. And so our faith should have within it this absolute confidence of God's unshakable love. You you might think, well, yeah, but you don't know what I'm like. Well, I probably think worse of you than you really are, (laughs) because I know myself. But the truth of Scripture is God's love for us is not shaken by our weakness or our brokenness. His love for us isn't based upon how well we perform. 
His love is based upon his heart and who he is and who we are to him. Who we are to him. When we come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called sons of God and children of God. Both those things are true. You're a child of God because you have a birth relationship with God through the new birth, the being born again. And you're a son of God, even if you're a woman, you're a son of God because it speaks of your standing in the family because you've been united with Christ. And that's who you are to him. And that's why he treats you so good. Isn't it amazing, parents and grandparents, how it is? Your love for your children and your grandchildren is such a way. It's, a, of, it's of such a measure that people can't understand it. In fact, sometimes they think, wow, you're really, you're goofy. I wouldn't put up with that. I had a guy tell me one time many years ago that I should disown one of my children because of the way they were acting at that moment. And I said, that's never going to happen. It's because of who they are to me. I can assure you, I have three children, ten grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Yes, I really am old, aren't I? But isn't it wonderful to have children and grandchildren that you can love because of who they are to you? It's not because they're world-class this or world-class that. It's because of who they are to you. And God loves you because of who you are to him. And Jesus, when he prayed for you, this is what he prayed, that you would come to understand that and to be able to walk by faith in that truth. Because there's going to be moments when Satan's going to lie to you and tell you that God is fed up with you, that he's had it. I mean, you failed so many times repetitively. Satan says to you, certainly you don't expect him to continue to put up with this, do you? No, I expect him to continue to love me the way he loved his son. And his love for me includes discipline. You know what that is, right? That's it's a nice word for spanking. Uh, God loves us so much, he will spank us at times. His faith included this confidence in the unshakable love of God towards him. And then, if you notice to the left, uh, he had confidence that God was able to raise the dead. God was able to raise the dead. You say, well, why would I believe that? Well, uh, raising the dead, as we'll see in a minute, is necessary for a person to become a Christian. Isn't that something? That he has to raise us from the dead spiritually in order for us to come into the family. And Jesus could speak to anybody. In fact, you remember some of the incidents in his life. One time, some men entrapped a woman. She was caught in adultery by their entrapment, and they drag her to Jesus and tell him he should cast the first stone because under the law, a woman caught in adultery should be stoned to death. And you remember what happened? Jesus didn't hate her. He didn't throw a stone. He just said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped their rocks, their stones, and they walked away. Why would he do that? Because he's a compassionate savior. He had come into the world to save the world, that the world would be saved through him. He's coming in the future in judgment for those who refuse the salvation he, he offers. But he didn't come the first time for judgment. He came for salvation. And so he tells the woman, where are your accusers? And she says, I don't know. They've left. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
You see, Jesus understood that the Father could raise the dead. He can take a person who was a rebel against God or a person who denies that God even exists, a person who's offended by the fact that you believe the gospel, that God can raise the spiritually dead. He can take a person who has no interest in the gospel or Jesus Christ or having a relationship with God at all, and through the, through the work of the Almighty God and the Holy Spirit, he can bring them to the place where they want that more than they want life itself. They want to know Christ. The reason that we share Christ all the time is it's the mission of the church. The reason we preach the gospel, it's the mission of the church for us to call people to Christ, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can have our sins forgiven and be given life and relationship with him. And one of the things that has to happen is, I'm not going to do this if I don't love people. If I don't love people who are far from God, I'm not going to share the gospel with them. And when you share the gospel with somebody, you're saying, I know something that would bless you so much that you wouldn't be able to contain the joy. I'd like to tell you how to receive it. And that's what he's called us to do. And so Jesus had his faith included the fact that he believed that God was able to raise the dead. Now, this became very personal for Jesus because, remember, he was in the tomb. He was crucified and laid in a tomb. And three days later, the Father raised him from the dead. And Jesus went to the, the cross knowing that the Father could raise the dead. His faith contained this confidence in God. And then he's able to reorder the cosmos. <laughs> um, he has control over everything. In other words, God is sovereign over all things. Sometimes we get to thinking, you know, if this could just change right here, if this one thing in life could change, then my life would be so much easier. But then, of course, that will never change, we think. And guess what? God is sovereign over all things. And so Jesus understood that he was sovereign. He was preaching. He came and presented himself as the Messiah of a people who hated him. They totally despise him. The great, it says in John 1, he came to his own creation and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. But a few of them received him. And he said, as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Why did God cause you to be born again? Why did he give you the new birth? To bring you into the family so that you would know him? And so that you would be, one, you would be a, a sibling, a spiritual sibling of his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's because of his love for us. And then he goes on and he says that uh, he, is, he also believed, based upon everything that's said about him in the Gospels, he believed in the loving discipline of the Father. Now, I, all of us believe in the, the loving discipline of the Father objectively, but not intuitively. When I'm being disciplined by the Father, I don't want to know, I don't want to admit it's discipline. I want to think it's something else. But Jesus believed in the loving discipline of the Father. And so whatever you're going through right now, you can, you can know this for certain. No matter how bad it is, no matter what you're facing, you can know this for certain. The Father who loves you is in control of this process. And he's going to manifest his love for you through this trial. He's going to bring you through it, and he's going to show you 
And, and what he wants you to do is he wants you to have the kind of faith that Jesus had towards him. He wants you to trust him, even in the midst of discipline. And anyway, you could go on and on. And uh, I, I love the, the fact that one thing he has on here is no anxiety. No anxiety. You know what anxiety is? Uh, being nervous about something. Uh, being distracted by something because you're, that you're fearing. You know how when you're on the highway and you're going down the road and you notice that your tank is empty and then you see a sign that says, next gas station, 150 miles. You remember that feeling? That's anxiety. Anxiety is the feeling that you don't have the resources that you need in order to continue on. And what the Bible says is, I don't have to live in anxiety because God is in control. I can cast my anxieties on him. I can humble myself under his mighty hand. He's the sovereign one. And so he lets me get in situations where it looks like I'm in big trouble here. And yet he's my provider. And so Peter Briggs, when he put this together, his point was is to tell us we need to have the same kind of faith that Jesus does. This is the kind of faith that we ought to have towards God because this is what God has revealed about himself. And faith is believing the promises of God. It's believing what God says. So because we live by faith and not by sight, faith is absolutely a necessity in order for us to live in the kingdom of God's dear son. You can't live in the kingdom apart from faith. And your faith is challenged every day. It's always being challenged. Now, the next thing is, is that uh, the entrance into the kingdom is, is illustrated by this situation in verses 11 through 17, which is the raising of the only son of a widow. You all know what a widow is, right? In the Bible, it talks about a, a widow who is a widow indeed. A widow indeed is a widow, that is, her husband's died. But not only that, she has no support whatsoever. That's what, that was a widow indeed when she's left completely alone. Because if a widow who's lost her husband but has children, those children have a responsibility to take care of her. Now, I know we don't believe that anymore in the United States because we have such a system, but the fact is, under the, under the rule of God, that's exactly how it worked. But this woman, has her husband has died, and now her only son, her only provider has died. And so what we have here is this account. In fact, look down at verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. Nain is a little bitty town, a little village, just a few miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And so he's down close to Nazareth, and he walks into this city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd, people wanting to, they've heard that this man speaks like no other man and that he can heal the sick and raise the dead and do miraculous things. And so they're there to see it. So he's walking along and here is this funeral procession that comes out of the city and he's walking towards it. And it says, now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a sizable crowd came from the city with her. Because this was, this was a very difficult thing. She's lost all means of support. There was no other kind of support except her family and friends, extended friends. So when the Lord saw her, what happened? Well, this is Jesus' response. When the Lord saw her, he felt, he felt 
compassion for her. He felt compassion for her. You know what compassion is, right? You remember that saying of the guy that when somebody was looking at him, and I'm, I do. Um, And so it says, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, stop weeping. Wait a minute, she just lost her son. And Jesus tells her to stop weeping? Can you imagine what she's going through? And he felt compassion. You know what that says? It says that Jesus had emotions. And some of you are thinking, well, that's because he was incarnate. He was a human being, so he had emotions. But God doesn't have any emotions, does he? It says he came up and he touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. This is a parallel to the resurrection of Lazarus. This is what Jesus said, remember, at the, at the opening of the tomb? And he said, Lazarus, arise. And Lazarus rose up and came out, and they took the, the burial cloth off him. We hear the dead man sat up and began to speak. He, he raised this man from the dead. And he sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. It would have gripped you too, wouldn't it? And they begin glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, how does Jesus do this? Well, he feels compassion for her. Do not weep. And some of you are thinking, Uh-oh, here we go. Jesus is getting all emotional. We have some guys uh, in the Christian circles who think it was, is absurd to think that God would ever have an emotion. There's a doctrine, uh, it's a legitimate doctrine called the, the, pa- the impassibility of God, impassibility, which means that God doesn't feel any pain. Uh, he's not affected by anything outside of himself, which is true. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have emotions. All through the Bible, we are told that God expresses his emotions in specific ways. He feels joy. He feels anger. In fact, we're told, for example, this, the third person of the Trinity is grieved. That is, he feels grief when you, the one he is empowering to live for Christ, are using your words as weapons against fellow Christians. That's Ephesians 4.30. It says that it grieves the Holy Spirit. We're also told in Romans 8 that when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. So the word groanings means it's talking about his deep, deep feelings for you. That he actually asks the Father. Sometimes you might be going through something right now that you can't imagine anybody knowing how you feel. It just hurts so deeply that no one could possibly understand how you feel. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. That's Jesus. And he intercedes to God, and God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, who love God and are called according to his purpose. You see, God does, the Bible's filled with, in fact, the Bible says in many, many places in the Old Testament that God has soul. Now, what soul is, it's a capacity within us because we are creating the image of God to feel life, to experience life. When God breathed into the nostrils of of Adam, it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives and he became a living soul. 
He began to experience life. He began to feel life. So don't ever think that God doesn't have feelings. The Bible's really clear about his feelings. In fact, uh, the Bible, I want to show you something here. Uh, God has emotions. I get a kick out of this because there's so many guys today who want to say that emotions are bad. Don't, and it's true, you don't want emotions to control your life. But emotions aren't bad. Emotions are the symphony of the soul. It's, there, you know, there are good emotions. You know that? You know, like when you hear a song. I was listening to the song last week, uh, Chris Tomlin's song, You're a Good, Good Father. Uh, I just love that song. I love the sentiment of it. And it affects me emotionally. And that's not sinful. It's not sinful for the truth of God to have impact on your affections. There's a guy, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, who writes a lot on preaching. And one of the things he says is, when a person is preaching, they haven't finished their task until the message that they are preaching has touched the affections of those who hear. That has touched you in your soul. It's touched you in the deep recesses of your heart. You know those times when God, the Holy Spirit, opens your eyes to the depth of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, and it moves you emotionally? That's not wrong. That's good. That's a good thing, because God made you in his image. Now, the word emotions, when it talks about God feeling things, the word that's used in the New Testament is splachna, which means guts, intestines. But the reason that the writers, the reason that culture used intestines to speak about deep emotions is it's, it's a picture of deep emotions. It touches you at the deepest part of who you are when the Spirit opens your eyes to God's love for you. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he says, Although you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him. So you love him and believe in him, and you have joy inexpressible full of glory. That's deep, profound joy. When the Spirit of God opens your eyes to who Christ is and what he's done for you, it will produce joy, deep down joy. And so when the Bible speaks about God's emotions, in fact, I, I don't know if I put this on here or not. We have these, these verses right here speak about God's emotions in very colorful ways. In this first passage here in Psalm 104, it talks about the earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. And it goes on to give a description of the kind of, of father that God is towards us. Because he always connected the land with the people who were living there. He's compassionate, a compassionate father. He's a good, good father. And he's emotionally connected. And so for those who respect him, they experience his connectedness to them. He senses where they are and what they need, and he responds accordingly. In Isaiah 30, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. What does that mean? It means that he actually wants to bless you. He has a desire to bless you because of his feelings towards you. You're his child, and he cares for you. And then down in Isaiah 63, so it talks about him looking down from heaven and seeing from, the, the Isaiah is saying, he looks down from heaven and sees from his holy, glorious habitation. And then Isaiah says to him, where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? 
The stirrings of your heart. Oh, that's a colorful expression. The stirrings of your heart means the roaring of your guts. Now, if you're a parent and you have raised children until they're in their majority, you know what it's like to have roaring guts. You know what it's like to to hurt down deep inside for your children. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, God, please don't be distant from us. Distant from us. Be engaged with us. Because, get this, you are our father. Even though Abraham may not know us, and Israel may not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And so what the prophet is looking for is he wants God to display his emotional involvement with his children. It is not a good thing for you to feel distant from God. Yeah, we go through those times where it feels like God's a million miles away, but I got to tell you, that's not a good thing. You don't want to stay there. You want to live your life. You want to come to the Word of God and trust in the Spirit of God in order for you to draw close to Him and for Him to give you that joy that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Isaiah assumes that God has previously displayed his zeal and his might for his people. He's, he's exercised his power to deliver them. And this shocking word picture, where is the roaring of your guts? Though God does not have intestines, he does have deep emotions. He has capacities to experience deep emotional response to his people. He loves his people. And he works on our behalf. You were born again because your father wanted you to see and enter the kingdom of his dear son. That's why you were born again, believer. This is what it says in John 1, when he says, came into his own, his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. He says, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. He was a theologian. He was a man in the know. He was one of, he, he, actually, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, which implies that he was the chief teacher of Israel. But he comes to Jesus and he said, we, mo- we know you must, be coming, you must be from God because of the things you teach and the things that you do. In other words, he's giving him, he's basically telling him, I'm, gonna, I'm reviewing you and I'm telling you you're okay. And Jesus says to him, you cannot see the kingdom And you cannot enter the kingdom. So what you think of me doesn't matter because you can't really see the fullness of what's going on here until you're born again. Why does God want you to be born again? Because he wants you to be brought into the kingdom. He wants you to see the the Christ who rules over his people. He wants you to experience what it's like to live under the leadership and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why when you witness to somebody, you're showing them you are, it's one of the greatest acts of love. It probably is the greatest act of love that you will ever experience when you share Christ with a person who doesn't know him because you are giving them a glimpse of the most blessed life that a person could ever experience. It's what you were made for. It's what I was made for. We were made for relationship with a God who loves the way God loves and so God does have emotion, and this is why he's given us life. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, this is the way it begins. 
uh, Paul is writing and he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What he means is you were dead to God. You had no awareness of God. You didn't care about God. You didn't want to hear about God. And you were bugged when people wanted you to hear about God. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging. The strong feelings we had was the strong feelings of selfishness for ourselves. And that cannot compare with the kind of stirrings that the spirit produces in the heart of the believer in love for other people. He says, but God, even though that was your condition, you were children of wrath, even the rest. But he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show, that is, he might demonstrate to us the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know what's going to be the toughest things about eternity with God? Is there are times when the blessings are going to be so rich and so full that you're going to kind of say, God, please let up just a little bit. I can't take anymore. The wonderful thing is your capacity to receive the love of God is going to be greatly expanded. And you'll be able to take these rich blessings. So how do spiritually dead people enter the kingdom of God? When they have no relationship with God, they don't want a relationship with God, how do they get into the kingdom of God? Through resurrection. God raised them from the dead, the new birth, being born again, being born of the Spirit. That's all talking about spiritually, being spiritually made alive and brought into the presence of God. And that's what he's picturing for us here in the resurrection of this only son of a widow. God in his compassion raises the son from the dead. God in his compassion has raised you, believer, from the dead and given you life in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of God he is. And then finally, the prophet is confused about the kingdom, and so Jesus gives an explanation. Notice what he says here. Let me read it for you again. This is in in verse 17, it says, after he raised the man from the dead, this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district, because fear had gripped them all, and they were glorifying him and saying, man, there's a great prophet among us. But then it says this, the disciples of John, that is John the baptizer, went to him. He's in prison. John's in prison, and he is confused because he's in prison, and he baptized Jesus. And when he baptized Jesus, the Father spoke from heaven. And remember this? When he baptized Jesus and the heavens opened up, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and the Father spoke out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And John had announced the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. He was coming into the world to make all things right. But now John's in prison. And in fact, in a short time, he's going to be beheaded. And so he is confused. And it says, this is what happened. When the men came to, the disciples of John reported to him about all these things, summoning two of the disciples. John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected or the coming one? Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or do we look for someone else? Why would he even ask that question? Because things weren't going the way he thought they were going to go. 
He thought that Jesus was going to come and he was going to destroy the enemies of his people and he was going to set up a throne and rule over his people and over the world at that time. And yet John is in prison. And so it says, then when the, when the men came to him, they said, John, the baptizer has sent us to you, to G, they're talking to Jesus, to ask, are you the coming one or should we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, so he does all these miraculous things, he heals all these people. And then he looks at John's disciples and he says, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. He's he's quoting from Isaiah 35. This is what it said the Messiah would do. So he just quotes Isaiah. And he says, the blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You know, sometimes it's really shaking to us to think that we really understand what God's going to do, and then he doesn't do it the way we think he should do it. You've had those experiences, haven't you? I've had those experiences. And so we want to wonder, well, what's going on here? You said, if I had the faith of a mustard seed, I could say to this mountain, be removed. And I've got this debt that I've prayed about. I, of course, I accumulated the debt foolishly, and I've been praying about it, and you haven't removed this mountain. What's going on? And that's kind of how John was. Wait a minute. What's happening here? I'm in prison, and you were supposed to be the one who set the prisoners free. So he's confused. And the reason he's confused is very clear to us when we look back. Let's look at a couple places. Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 18. And let me read it too, since I put my glasses on. (laughs) The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach. He's quoting from Isaiah 61. This is a prophetic passage that that Isaiah said, this is what the Messiah would say when he comes. And so Jesus is reading it in the synagogue. He's reading right from the scroll of Isaiah. And this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind to get to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now what I want you to do, and he stops there. Now what I want you to do is look back to Isaiah 61. This is what he's quoting. Isaiah 61. That's not too hard to find. It's about right in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah 61 um, this is what I, this is what he, this is the passage he read, but he stopped after the first line in, 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 uh, verse six in your Bibles. This is Isaiah 61. I'm sorry. Verses one and two. And so he stops after he says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He doesn't add this. This is what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, he's comes to proclaim the year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. He's going to get back at his enemies. He didn't say that. He didn't read that part. Why? Because he wants Isaiah to know and understand that he came to save the world, not to condemn it. He's coming in the future for judgment. The Bible says, for example, in in Hebrews chapter 9, that there's a future day in which Christ is going to come back to judge the world. Jesus didn't come and judge the world. He's going to judge the world in the future. And you know what? You're not supposed to be judging the world. 
You're not supposed to be loving the world, but you're supposed to be loving the world the way you ought to love the world so you won't love the world the way you're not supposed to love the world. How's that? Love the world the way Jesus says that God does in John 3.16. I'm not even going to quote that. You know that verse, right? John 3.16. God loved the world, and you're supposed to love the world in the same way. That way. But not the way that John says, do not love the world. Stop loving the world. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, are not of God. So what's the deal? I love the people in the world. Because the people in the world are the ones who need Christ. And I'm supposed to love these people enough to tell them about Christ. I'd like to give you an assignment. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. I was going to not do it, but I'm going to give it to you. I want you to write down five names of people in your life that you want to see, that don't know Christ, that you want to see them come to Christ. I just want you to write their names down. All I want you to do with that is not turn it in. I want you to write down their names, and then I want you every day this week to pray for them that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that God would give them the greatest gift that he could possibly give them. We got some wedding announcements recently from around the country. Different people used to go to church who have moved away and uh, young people getting married. And you know, usually they give you an opportunity to give something to them or a graduation the same way. And so they make it really easy for you now. You just go on Amazon see where they're registered. You pick one of those gifts and they send it to them. It's just painless till your credit card bill comes. But sometimes it's hard. What kind of gift? Write down five names and say, what kind of gift do you want them to receive from God? If they don't know Christ, the gift that they can receive from God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can begin to pray for them. Now, don't be surprised if you start praying for people who don't know Christ in your life. Don't be surprised if God opens a door surprisingly to you and you have the opportunity to share Christ with them. And if you're thinking, I don't know how to do that, I want to tell you, yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you're a believer, you know how to do that. All you have to do is tell them, this is what I've experienced. Somebody told me all I had to do was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I would be saved. You remember John 6, I mean in Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And, and, in John, and then Paul gives him this long gospel presentation. You remember that? You shouldn't because it doesn't say that. How, what, is, what does Paul say to them, to him? What does Paul say to the Philippian jailer who says, what must I do to be saved? You know it. What is it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And you know, if I had everybody stand here who uh, got saved when they heard a presentation of the gospel, and now they look at it was so simple and convoluted, they can't even understand how it was that they understood what the gospel was. A bunch of you would stand up. Because it's the Spirit of God who brings to the heart of a person eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. So if you just start praying for these people that God has put in your life and, and see if he doesn't open a door for them to hear the gospel. I want you to show, I, I feel like a, a prophetic teacher with these charts, but this is a great chart. This is a picture of an Old Testament prophet looking ahead at what God has revealed. Those are represented by two mountains. But the point is, is that from where he's standing, it looks like one mountain. You know how that is. You look at Mount Diablo 
or some mountain somewhere, and it's, it's this huge mountain. You look at it, it looks like one mountain, but then you find out there's this big space between the two mountains. That's the first and second coming of Christ as the Old Testament prophets saw it. In fact, we have this uh, actually explained, mentioned over in 1 Peter. I'm going to have you turn there. 1 Peter, 1 Peter is towards the end of the Bible after Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I mentioned to you about uh, verse 8, though you haven't seen him, you love him, and so forth. Then in verse, nine, it's, uh, verse 10, rather, it says, As to this salvation, as to this salvation through Christ, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, get this, The prophets heard God predicting the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories to follow. And so they couldn't figure out how this fit together. That's why you see in this imagination of Isaiah the prophet, both the crown and the cross. They couldn't see that that, there's a separation of at least 2,000 years. He's come and he's suffered on the cross. And there's there's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come yet. But he's coming. And when he comes, he's going to reign in glory. And so the problem was that John didn't see that Jesus had not come to rule and to condemn his enemies. He came to save the world by going to the cross, by suffering for our sins. And so Jesus wants him to understand that he's the Messiah, and he wants him to trust him. Trust him. Sometimes Jesus is going to do things that you don't understand. Doesn't he have the right to do that since you're not God and he is? I just love it when people get God all figured out. Uh, Phil Howard's dad, uh, he was probably my age. I started to say he was an old man. He was probably my age. He was, and he said, he said to us, you know, I love you guys. I love your exactnacity. I had never heard that word. Have you ever heard that word, exagnacity? It's not a word, but he made it up. And what it means is, I love the way you are so exact about what the Bible teaches as though you really do understand it, don't you? And then you find out that, you know what? You're not such a genius as you thought. God really is far greater in his understanding, in his thinking. He's omniscient. means he has all knowledge. You're just kind of smart. This guy, Peter Briggs, I've been talking to, he's a really smart guy. I had another friend, uh, he, he, went to, he graduated from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. That's a hard school to get into. He's a very smart guy. And he's doing all this writing about the Bible and his teaching. And I really get a kick out of it because he has such exactnacity. But you know what? You know enough to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know enough to talk to your unsaved friends about what, God, what Christ has done in your life. If you have forgotten what Christ has done in your life, you ought to think about it. Maybe ask somebody who knows you. What do you think the difference is in my life now and before I came to faith in Christ? All of us know people. We know people that we knew them before they got saved and we knew them after they got saved. And they can't even think of anything to say to anybody about what Christ has done for them. And you think, what's wrong with you? 
Don't you realize what God has done for you? Huh, Dewey? Do you realize what he's done for you? It's amazing. Dewey's going to have surgery this week. We want to pray for him. He's going to have surgery on Wednesday. But that's just been how it's been since I've first known him. When he first came to Christ, he was just had come out of surgery. And now he's going back into surgery. But I want to tell you, this guy, I have seen the difference. I met him before he was a believer, and I saw him got saved, and I've seen him live the Christian life, and I can tell you God has poured out, he has gushed forth his love into his heart over and over and over and over again. And he can share the gospel because God has done something wonderful in his life, and he's done something wonderful in your life too, believer. He's done all kinds of glorious things that maybe you've come to take them for granted, but they're glorious. They're absolutely glorious. I'm going to stop, but you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to pray for the people who are going to be involved in VBS. So if you're going to be involved in any way, would you stand up? Because I want to pray for you. Just stand. Isn't it funny? The people are going to work in VBS can hardly walk and stand, but... But I want to pray for him. Our Father, as we come before you, how grateful we are we have this opportunity to share Christ with a whole crop of children. Ninety children have signed up, and we, they're going to have this opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ, these ambassadors of Christ. I thank you for them. I thank you, Father, for putting it on their heart to participate in this. And I pray that you would surprise them with the opportunities they have to share Christ with these children. I pray, oh God, that you would stir the hearts of these kids, open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, I pray. Touch their parents' lives. We want to be a lampstand in which the light of the glory of Christ shines forth throughout this whole community. So we ask you, Father, please energize them, empower them, give them the strength to go through this week and serve you in this way. We are so grateful for what you've done in their hearts, and we pray that you would continue to work in them and through them and then continually in those that you touch through their testimony and through their ministry, Father. And now as uh, we leave this place, we ask you, Father, to empower us and energize us to be witnesses for Christ. That's our mission in this world. That's why we're still here, is because we know the truth about Christ. And we pray that this week you would open many doors for us to be able to share the truth of who he is. Thank you so much for this king that we have bowed the knee to, who rules over our life in such a wonderful way. We have absolute confidence in you, Father. We thank you so much for sending your son and for saving us and bringing us into the kingdom. So as we leave here today, we pray your blessing upon us. Help us to go out into the world and be ambassadors for Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Respond to this message or learn more. Please visit calvarytruth.org.